We're going to be diving into Genesis chapter 6 as we continue to look at the life of Abram and, and really his journey of faith. But before we dive into there, I just, I wanted to maybe do a quick survey, a quick poll. How many uh, in here are able to drive a manual transmission vehicle? Okay, that's a, that's a good percentage. Okay, for those of you who can do that, listen, for those of you who can't, there's no shame in that. It's okay. You're smarter. You're taking the automatic route. That's fine. That's good. Um, work smarter, not harder, right? So, so, but those of you who, who are able to drive a manual transmission vehicle, do you remember when you first learned how to do that? Okay. What was the most terrifying thought? Somebody said it. Hills. Right? It's not just stopping. Look, there's fear of stalling out in the middle of traffic, right? You're at a light, stalling out. That's one thing. But it's an entirely different thing to have to, when you're first learning, to stop on a hill. It's actually terrifying because, because you know, you risk, you risk not being able to start the car, to, you know, get the clutch to catch and get the gas going, and instead, you, this fear goes through your mind. What if I can't get it, and I begin to slide back and hit that car that's actually only two inches away from my bumper? The life of faith can be a lot like that. And it's interesting, when we look at Abram, you know, we've just come out of chapter 15, and here's what I want you to think about. Abram is kind of riding this high of his faith. We saw in chapter 15, it's kind of like the high watermark of the Abram story. It's the Abrahamic covenant where God has ratified this, this promise that he has made to Abram to give him the land and the offspring, and you know, he's going to be the blessing to the entire world. And it's like he's kind of been driving uphill, just cruising uphill, and he's just flying uphill. And then all of a sudden, we get to chapter 16, and what we're going to see, it's just like he's just kind of stopped in the middle of the hill. And actually, it's a little bit worse than that. It's like he's taken his foot off the brake, and he's held the clutch in, and the car is just drifting backwards and smashing into everything behind him. And the thought, that when I read this this week, when I was studying and preparing, here's the thought that kind of popped into my mind. Why do we have such polar extremes back to back in the book of Genesis? You ever think about like, why show Abram on top of the world and then show him in the deepest valley back to back? Well, I think the answer is actually pretty straightforward. I think it's because this, this is actually the nature of the life of faith. This is actually a common experience for all people of faith. We can be on top of the mountain, on top of the hill, and then the next day we can be drifting backwards and crashing into everything in our wake. And I think the lesson here in many ways is that there is never a moment when we can simply stop walking by faith. When we do, we don't stand still in the Christian life, okay? We, we begin to slide backwards. We begin to do great damage. We never stand still in the Christian life. This passage is telling us that we should not be like Abram and Sarah in this particular context who display a fickle faith. 
a frail faith, a flip-flop faith. And yet, what we find out as we read this, listen, we need to read this with great humility. When we look at this passage, you want to know what we learn most of all? We're just like them. We're just like them. And we need to learn, if I can push this metaphor a little bit further, to pump the brakes on sin and figure out how to restart the ignition and step on the gas pedal of faith. I want to just read this entire chapter together. Let's begin in verse 1, and then we're going to look at it in two separate parts together this afternoon. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, it may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave you my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. And the angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahay Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I want to ask and answer one question. One question, hopefully two-part answer here, and here's the question, how do I fight against my fickle faith? How do, I, how do I win the fight against my fickle faith? 
Because hopefully you see yourself in Sarai and Abram. You see your potential today to be walking faithfully with the Lord, riding spiritual highs, but then experiencing some kind of a a low and a spiritual crash. We need to know, if we're going to walk by faith and not by sight, how we can fight our fickle faith. First, here's what we need to do. I must stop trying my ways and start trusting God's word. That's, that's really simple, but it, it's exactly the point of the first six verses that we see here. We are brought into this context, and the passage is actually saying some very powerful things. There's a, a lot of subtleties in this passage and a lot of irony in this passage, but I want you to see this first of all. Verse 1 says that Sarai is Abram's wife. And if you're listening carefully to the passage, you'll know that Sarai is identified as Abram's wife numerous times, as if Moses is saying something to us. And here's what he's saying. Listen, listen, this is really good. Polygamy's not okay. Monogamy is God's plan. He's also saying something powerful about the promise of God. He's making it clear that God is going to fulfill his promise through Sarai, Abram's wife. That's the way he's going to do it. But instead, we're we're introduced secondly to another character, and that is this Egyptian woman named Hagar, who is the servant of of Sarai. And here's where there's a little bit of irony. You see, it's more than likely that that Hagar was acquired when Sarai and Abram were in Egypt. Remember in chapter 13, they left Egypt with many spoils and Pharaoh had given them many gifts. It's more than likely that that's where they they received Hagar as some kind of a gift And what's really fascinating is that we've already seen in chapter 15, here's the irony here, is that the people of God are going to be brought back into Egypt where they're going to be afflicted by the Egyptians. And what we're going to see here is that it's the people of God who are going to send away the Egyptian and bring afflictions upon her. The context, too, is really important in terms of the the timing of all this. They had been 10 years in Canaan, and so you can just kind of put the pieces together in your mind. At this point, Abram is about 85 years old, and and Sarai, we know, is 10 years younger, so she's 75. Again, she's no spring chicken. Time just kind of keeps ticking away, and so all of a sudden, we're brought into this real-life scenario where they're experiencing a lot of confusion about what exactly God is going to do. God has promised this heir, this offspring, this child, but they're looking at their life and they're saying, really God, like when is this going to happen? It doesn't appear like it's going to. The doubt is beginning to creep in and and it's compounded by the, the, the ancient kind of perspective on barrenness. It was viewed as something incredibly negative, like there was something wrong with you, like you were cursed. And so you add on top of this picture, this this humiliation, feelings of inadequacy. So what, what does she do? Look at verse 2. It says, Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. That's a really, really important statement. Notice who she attributes 
this barrenness too. She looks at her circumstances, and in essence, there's, there's a tinge here, I think it's supposed to be read with a little bit of tinge of frustration, almost like she's blaming God. God, this is your fault. You have made me barren. And more than likely, what this is communicating is that, listen, she's 75 years old. She is well past the age of childbearing. She is menopausal. From a human perspective, bearing a child is actually now physically impossible. This impatience and pain sets in motion a very bad plan. But it's, it's, it's more than that, right? It's, it's not just that she's, she's impatient and there's pain. She's blaming God. She's angry at God. And I just think it's really helpful just to, to stop and, and maybe note something here. It's one thing, you know, that happens when, when we stop trusting God. No matter how reasonable our lack of trust seems, like Sarah's can seem, we tend to blame God and other people for our difficulties. I think we stop trusting God and we can see that lack of trust in our willingness to blame others and to blame God. And and let's make one thing clear. This is a total failure on Sarai's part here. And and you just kind of need to hear how this kind of progresses. Behold, she's looking at her situation, and then she sees Hagar, her Egyptian servant. And then notice this phrase twice here, once in verse 3, and again in verse 5. It says, and she gave her to Abraham. Verse 5, I gave my servant to your embrace. She sees, she takes, she gives. Does this sound? at all familiar. Moses, you see, wrote this account as a parallel to the fall in the garden. And he's intending for us to kind of see it as that, to hear the echoes of of Eden through the pages of this passage. And I think we see here that the heart of sin is trusting self instead of God. It's almost as if God's saying, listen, we got the same problem as the Garden of Eden all over again. Remember Eve? She saw that the fruit was good. She took the fruit. She gave the fruit. And her husband listened to her voice. And here we have a replay of the exact same situation. All sin, listen, you can boil it down to this, is a distrust of the Word of God. It's a powerful reminder that when we stop trusting God, we start trying to play God. We quickly abandon our God-given roles and responsibilities, and we operate outside the bounds of what God says will actually bring about blessing. But, but Sarai is not the only one at fault, right? Abram's fickle faith is on full display as well. The passivity and the apathy in Abram here is appalling, I mean, it is shocking that this man of faith can be so apathetic to what's going on around him. He, he doesn't lead his wife in any way, shape, or form. He should have intervened. And again, I want you to think of the fall in the Garden of Eden. You know Adam as the, the head of the, the home, the one who received the word of God directly from God. When he saw the, the serpent deceiving Eve, he should have jumped in and said, Eve, hold on a second here. Remember what God said. Remember what God promised. Remember God said that this choice to disobey him will only bring death. 
But obedience will be the source of blessing and life for us. Abram in this moment should have pulled his wife aside and said, Sarah, listen, I know this is hard. I know this is confusing. I don't quite understand what's going on either. But listen, we need to believe the word of God. We need to trust that he is true, that he's faithful, that he's going to do exactly what he said he was going to do. I know it looks humanly impossible, but remember, we serve the God who spoke all of the world into existence by the word of his power. He can certainly bring life to your dead womb, Sarai. Don't give up faith. Don't give up hope. Don't take things into your own hands. It's only going to lead to disaster. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned here, and and let me just make one maybe quick application now that we're talking about marriage and we're talking about Adam and Eve and Abram and Sarai. And and let let me just say that great confusion and destruction occurs in our lives and in our marriages, in our families, when we decide not to abide by God's roles and responsibilities. And let me speak directly to to the men, maybe, because that's easier. (sighs) I I really think what this passage is highlighting, listen, Sarai is at fault, but there's a special kind of blame that's being placed on Abram, and Sarai recognizes that. She actually calls him out and says, listen, the Lord judge between you and between me. And I think she's actually, in that moment, even though she's in sin still, she's rightly identifying that Abram's actually gone to answer to the Lord. He has a kind of responsibility to protect her spiritually, to provide for her spiritually, to care for her spiritually, to correct her with gentleness and love and compassion, to lead her in truth. And men, let me just say that God has given to you a unique responsibility to shepherd and care for your wife and your family. He's called you to be godly, and part of that means this, that you have to lead your family according to God's word. You you have to be a man of the word. You have to be immersed in the word. You have to be able to defend truth for your family. You have to be able to lead your family into the truth of the gospel and the blessings that pour forth from knowing and obeying God's word. Now, women, you're not off the hook. There's no excuse here for Sarah. I want you to know that. Ab- yeah, Abram's going to get some blame, but Sarah here had a responsibility not to force her way. She's in some ways just enacting the curse. She'll usurp power, usurp control. She's not going to work with her husband. She's going to push forward, and she's going to do things her way. And can I just say, listen, that's always, always, always a recipe for disaster. Marriage is meant to be a teamwork where we're, listen, we're working together on mission for God's glory then we need to understand our our roles and our responsibilities and how we work together, not against each other. Look what happens as a result of this. This is so tragic. Verse 4, and he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah, I said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. This is a marriage triangle that is just, just devolving into utter chaos. And rightly so. 
Rightly so. This is, it's filled with, with sin. Abram and Sarah, look at, look at what they do. They, they treat Hagar like this unfeeling object, like a, a soulless surrogate. And let's make no mistake about it. She is certainly a victim in this. She is forced into this. But I want you to see she is not faultless in this. There's nobody righteous in this equation. In fact, when she conceives a child, do you see what she does? She looks at Sarai with contempt. She becomes proudly pregnant. The victim becomes the victimizer. And it's interesting, in verse 5, right, Sarai, she just throws all the blame on Abram. She's not taking responsibility for any of her actions, not confronting any of her own sin and failures. It sounds just like marriage counseling. <laughs> or every fight you have in marriage, at least at the beginning. This is your fault. How could you do this? She forgot the whole part where she said, hey, here's my servant. She's not confronting her own sin, her own failures, and, and by the way, that might have smoothed things out, and, and there could have been a much better outcome, humanly speaking, if she did, and it, it's just a total relationship failure on the part of both Sarai and Abram, and, and it gets worse for Abram, and he, he didn't lead or protect Sarai, and he continues along this path. He just, he just washes his hands. He washes his hands. Look, she's in your power. Do whatever you think's good. Really? Again, you're not going to protect the women that God's put in your life? These people, here's what we need to see, okay? This is, because it's just such a crazy situation. And by the way, Sarai just treats her with, like, so harshly. It must have been so unbearable that she's like, I just got to get out of here, and she runs. And here's, again, here's what you need to see in this. These people are operating in flesh, in the flesh, not in faith. They're trying to bring about the promise of God by the flesh rather than faith. They see this plan, but, but we see it didn't require faith in God at all. It, it took things out of God's hands. It was a natural human response to the problem and circumstances they found themselves in. They tried to solve their problem with their own ability. And when we leave God out of the equation in our lives, listen, we inevitably come up with the wrong conclusions. And even if we do come up with the right conclusions, for some strange reason, it's because, or sorry, it's wrong because we have actually left God out. So I want to ask this question, how did they come up with this plan? Isn't it, like, doesn't that kind of stick out to you? Like, why in the world would they come up with a plan like this? How could they not immediately think this, this was a disaster. And I, I need you to really pay attention to this because it's really important. Listen, ready? Here, here's the answer. Because this was culturally appropriate and acceptable. That's how they came up with the plan. This, this wasn't an unusual idea in their culture. This was something that their culture actually thought was a good idea. If, if you were barren in this culture, again, what your husband could do was he could rightly take your maidservant and have a child with her, and that child would legally then become as if it were the child of the first wife. 
So, so this was promoted in the culture. It was widely accepted, and there's lots of extra biblical literature that actually points to this reality. So in essence, what I'm trying to say to you is this. They were just simply doing what everybody else said was perfectly acceptable and okay. And the principle we draw from this, I hope you see this already, is that cultural customs should never take precedence over God's commands. Cultural customs should never take precedence over God's commands where they conflict. The wisdom of this world must be rejected as a substitute for the wisdom of God. I just finished a biography on, uh, on Pastor Tim Keller, and, um, and, and in it he described, or the biographer was describing a point in his ministry. Uh, he ministered at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, and at the, a point in the early 90s, his church just began to boom, just massive growth, people being saved, you know, almost revival-like. And, and one thing that the biographer noted was that uh, many people who had committed themselves to, to the, the church and in many, maybe been saved in the church, they actually began to fall away, particularly when they were confronted by the Bible's commands about sex in marriage between one man and one woman for life. It's interesting, right? They're, in, they're, here, they're here in the New York culture, and the one issue that becomes a thorn in the side uh, for these young believers or people who are exploring the faith has to do with the Christian sexual, sexual ethic. And in, in, in the biography, the author says this, I think recounting what Tim Keller had, had shared with him, said that chastity wasn't even comprehensible to most New Yorkers. Many just laughed at the idea and diagnosed it as a psychologically destructive reality. So what did he do? He preached a nine-week series on marriage from the Bible. He went at it head-on, addressed the issue... And he tried to show people how the world doesn't define what we believe is right. The world doesn't get to determine what God blesses. God's word determines what is true and right and beautiful. God's word leads to blessing. And the Bible presents, listen, a sexual ethic that is in radical opposition to the culture, to the world that we live in. Our world promotes a sexual ethic that it deems as appropriate and acceptable, yet must be rejected by Christians because God says it is wicked and destructive. But the world, for example, says that marriage is unnecessary and promotes sexual promiscuity, you know, live together before you get married, right? You wouldn't buy a car without test driving it first. But God's word says that marriage is a covenant relationship created by him that is for the good of humanity and for the glory of his name. God's word says that sex and sexual activity is actually reserved for that one relationship alone. 
We are called by God's word to keep the marriage bed pure. The world, though, says, you know, if, if you do get married, it's actually all about you. It's all about your happiness. It's about your spouse serving you, giving, what, giving you what you want, what you need. And if you aren't happy, if you don't get what you deserve, what you need, just go find somebody else who will make you happier. God's word says to selflessly serve one another, to love and to cherish and to respect one another, to give your life for the good of each other, to take your marriage vows seriously before God. The world says that women are equal to men and different roles and responsibilities are oppressive and archaic. God's word says they're part of a divine design to lead to human happiness and flourishing. The world says it's okay, you know, for those of you who are like, well, I'm not married. How does, how does this apply to me? Well, the world says it's okay uh, to look, to glance, maybe even to dabble in pornography. The world says that's all fine. There's no harm in that. Jesus says if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. And listen, I've applied, applied this principle here to a biblical sexual ethic and specifically to marriage just to kind of allow the passage in some ways to shape our thinking. But I want you to, to hear this. Listen, as Christians, we must think deeply and carefully about every single area of our lives. In what ways are we allowing our culture, our world to dictate our thinking and behavior over and above the word of God? And in what ways are we trying to bring about blessing instead of trusting God's ways, God's word that promises to bring blessing his way? We must believe that God's ways are better than our ways. And and, and we say this principle a lot around here, right? You choose to sin, choose to suffer. But the opposite is equally as true. And I think we need to emphasize this more in our own hearts and minds. Listen, when you're faced with sin, you have to remember, choose to sin, choose to suffer. There should be warning signs that go off in your mind, thinking like, listen, I know it's appealing. I know it looks good. I know it's going to feel good. I know this feels right in the moment, but it will not lead to anything good. It's only going to lead to suffering, to brokenness, to despair, to hurt, to pain. That's all it's going to bring. And in the moment, we need to contrast that thinking with this. Listen, obedience to God's word always leads to blessing. Always. God will never disappoint you. The blessing may not come in in the, the way you think it will, but I promise you this, God's word is true. He's faithful to his word. If you choose obedience in the face of sin, you will be blessed by God. And the great, you're like, well, what kind of blessings? Like, is this going to lead to to material prosperity, to financial prosperity, to health? I don't know, maybe. Maybe not. I can promise you this. You know the greatest blessing of all that you'll experience in obedience to God's word? It's this, looking more like Jesus Christ. Intimacy with God. I'm telling you right now, listen, there is nothing sweeter than being near to God. It's the greatest blessing of all, and all obedience to God's word promises that for sure. Fickle faith leads, listen, to forbidden fruit. But isn't it amazing how the forbidden fruit looks so appealing and it tastes so good, but it produces such pain and destruction every time? Listen, there is grace, of course. But I think we need to hear this too. There are some sins 
such that the results cannot be taken back. And the pain goes on and on in this world. And that's actually one of the byproducts of this decision from Abram and Sarah. God is merciful and gracious. We're going to find that out in a minute. But I want you to know this. This decision is going to have ramifications for the rest of their lives and for their offspring until the return of Jesus. So how then do I keep fighting against my fickle faith? Well, I need to stop trying my ways and start trusting God's word. But secondly, I must stop running from God and start receiving from God. The next section here, 7 through 16, highlights Hagar and her experience in the wilderness. She's being abused, and and Sarai has been incredibly sinful and harsh, and so she flees from the wrath of Sarai into the wilderness. She goes right up to the border of Egypt. That's where this is. It says that the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. If you look at a map, you'll see it. She's getting awfully close to Egypt. Now, remember, she is an Egyptian. And so this actually makes a whole lot of sense, right? But think about the implications of this. She's going back to her people, which likely means she's going back to their gods. Do you remember Ruth? One of the marks of Ruth and her character, her daughter-in-law, right? she, or she's, she's the daughter-in-law, she says, she's like, look, where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. So here what we actually see is a little bit of the opposite. She's running actually away from the direction of where God is with his people, and instead she's running back to what she knows, to what's familiar. She's running from God, and, and the awesome part of this passage is that that's when God chooses to intervene. And this is the way that God works. God in his kindness, listen, so often intervenes in our lives when we're running away from him. Verse 8 tells us that she's confronted by this angel of the Lord, and the angel said to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She states the obvious, and by the way, the angel of the Lord already knows the answer, but these questions are designed to help Sarai pour out her heart. She says, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. There's such tender mercy here. There's such hope and kindness here. God stops her. He comes to her, listen, in both her sin and in her suffering. And he offers here a way, her here a way of salvation. And I just, I, I, want, I want some of you in here, you need to hear this. This is so applicable. That God wants to meet you in your sin and in your suffering. He, he wants to meet you in your pain and your affliction. Whether it's pain, listen, because of your own sin or pain because of somebody else's sin against you or perhaps a pain because of both of those two things mixed together, God wants to meet you in these moments. And if we're not careful, we can waste these moments of experiencing the kindness and mercy of God. We can run right by God while he's trying to grab us and show us mercy and love. 
The angel of the Lord is, is a powerful expression here or manifestation of some kind of the Lord. Some people think that this is what's called a Christophany, um, a, a a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. I, I'm not sure. Either way, it's, it's some kind of expression of God himself to her through a messenger, through Christ himself. Whoever this figure is, he is at least a shadow of Christ who comes to sinners and sufferers with the offer and hope of salvation. And there's such beautiful grace and mercy in this passage. I want you to notice the language in, in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. That's crazy. But that, that's a stunning statement. She's fleeing for her life. She, listen, she's so desperate, she's got to the place where she feels it's better to be in the wilderness as a pregnant mother by herself than to be in the home of Sarai. And God's like, look, you need to go back and you need to submit to her. So why, why would he ask her to do this? Well, there's a, there's a number of reasons, but I think first it's because he desires to bless her and protect her. The honest truth is that if she stays out here in the wilderness, she will likely die. And even if she makes it back to Egypt, she will embrace their people and their gods and therefore she will remain spiritually dead in her trespasses and sins. She, she will remain. If she gets back to Egypt, she's not coming back. She's not coming back to, to Abram. She's not believing the promises of God. There's no way, no how. She will be lost and without hope in this world. In other words, this is a call to receive mercy from God. It's a call to receive salvation from God. It's a call for her to trust God alone. It's amazing how God will, will put us in the most dire of circumstances and how often is this necessary for you and for me? God has to put us in these places of utter brokenness and despair, of utter helplessness and human hopelessness so that, listen, so that we can recognize our deep need for his divine intervention. Do you see that? When, when God brings you to a, a place of lowliness and brokenness, when God has you on the floor, when God has your face to the carpet, when tears are coming from your eyes, when you're confused, when you're hurting, and again, maybe even as a result of your own sin, listen, God has a purpose in that for you. God wants to get you to that place in order to pick you back up. God wants you there, lowly and broken, so he can raise you up and build you up. For some of you in here today, God's getting you to this place of brokenness repeatedly, time and time again, because you refuse to turn to him. Some of you in here today, listen, you're not a believer. You're not. You're, you're far from God. You've been running from God, much, much like Hagar here. And there's all kind of mess in your life, but you've been running far from God, and you've not seen that God in his kindness, maybe even today, is saying, listen, come to me. I will give you hope and I will give you healing. I will protect you and I will provide for you. Until you recognize that you cannot save yourself, you will be lost and dead in the wilderness. Spiritually speaking, you will not survive unless you receive mercy from God. 
You say, what does this look like? It looks like believing and obeying. It looks like, like this, returning and submitting. I, I want you just to note this. You cannot return to God without submitting to God. Okay? This is so important, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. You know, because believers, listen, we can run from God too. We may still be saved, but, but we can run from God. And one of the things you need to understand is in order to return to God, you must actually submit to God again. That's what her submission to Sarai is actually ultimately depicting. Do you kind of catch that here? She's actually submitting as unto the Lord. Remember, God's the one giving her the command. So when she submits to Sarai, she's actually submitting to God's command. She's obeying God. She's believing that what God is saying to her to do is actually best for her. It's good for her. Even though, listen, this is important, even though it's going to be extremely hard. When God calls you to come and return to him and submit to him, he never promises it's going to be easy. But I can tell you this, it's far better, it's far better, excuse me, than the alternative. Let me make one more kind of, I hope, pertinent observation and application. Uh, She's being told to return and submit to those that she had sinned against. I want you to think about this, and had sinned against her. Why would God do this? Again, I think there's more than one reason at play here, but first, I think think we need to see that it, it is better to be in the covenant community with those who have hurt us and to risk being hurt again than to be outside the covenant community. It's, it's through Abram that God will bring blessing to the world. It's through Abram that, that God, the hope of salvation for the world is going to come. And there's a sense in which God says, don't you understand? To be, to be there is so much better than to be anywhere else, as broken as it is, as imperfect as it is. And, and I want you to see that there's a, a parallel here that we can, we can draw between Abram and the church. Now, let me be very clear. Abram is not the church. But the parallel here, I think, is striking. I, I, I hear very, this very often as a pastor, and maybe some of you have heard this too, but, but I know that there are people who come into the church or, or who have been hurt by other churches. There, there's people I bump into all the time that say, I, I used to go to church, I don't go to church anymore, I was hurt by the church, the leadership of the church, people in the church, I grew up in the church, it was painful experience, and so they've rejected the church, they've run from the church. People run from the church and relationships because of that hurt. I, I understand that, and, I'm, and in many ways, I'm very sympathetic to that. Churches can, and people in churches can do pretty awful things. But I want you to, to hear this, that God calls us to return to deal with that hurt appropriately. Resolving issues, reconciling relationships, restoring what was broken, and he doesn't promise it's going to be easy. I cannot tell you how many people I've seen leave a church or the church because of hurt, only to see that hurt turn into deep-seated bitterness that eats away at their life like a cancer that's simply ignored and allowed to metastasize. If you fail to deal with your hurt, this is so important. I've, I've seen this do so much damage to so many people. If you fail to deal with your hurt, you don't just leave it behind. You bring it with you wherever you go. And I, I want to tell you that Being in an imperfect church is better than not being in a church at all. 
And, and if you, you've come to this church and you think it's perfect, just stick around for one more week. You'll find out it's not. If you think you're not, if you're like, oh, I'll never get hurt in this church, this, you know, you, you don't, that's a wrong expectation. In fact, if you read through the New Testament, the New Testament talks often about divisions in the church, about restoration in the church, reconciliation amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, it's, it's, in other words, it's almost as if it's so frequent, it's just like, get ready, it's coming. But God gives us everything we need to deal with that. And I, I think it's um, perhaps a very helpful application on a membership Sunday. You know, one of the things we need to understand is this is what we commit to as the family of God. There's no perfect family. There's no perfect church family. People and families hurt each other. We sin. But in God's grace, we can restore relationships. And actually, listen, this is, this is what's really powerful. In doing so, we're actually living out the gospel in real life. We're putting the gospel on, on full display. So I just, I want to urge you, if, if there's unreconciled issues in relationships in your life, and, and especially if they're with other believers, and if they're especially in this church, the, the Bible calls you to deal with those things, to not delay. To, to, you know, it's fitting, again, we're, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper in a few moments here together, but to leave your gift at the altar and to go and be reconciled to your brother. It's, it's like God's saying, like, don't you understand? You can't celebrate the gospel if you don't live the gospel. How do you rejoice in what I've done for you if you don't get it well enough to actually go and show people that you get my grace, that you understand forgiveness? And this is vital for the health of the church, for the church to be able to flourish and grow and make an impact on the world. We have to deal with broken relationships in a biblical way. And you're like, I really struggle with this. I get it. I get it. It's hard. But remember what you have done to Christ in your sin. This is so helpful. You're like, how do I reconcile with somebody who's hurt me? Remember what you've done to Christ in your sin. I promise you this. You've done far worse to Christ than what somebody else has ever done to you. And then, listen, remember what Christ has done for you. Remember his forgiveness. Remember his mercy. Tim Keller famously said, the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. That's, that's the truth that allows us to reconcile with one another. And we live this out in community. I just want you to see how she responds here. She called God the God who sees me. She's the first person in the Bible to give God a name. It's fascinating. Somebody who's, who's not even a part of the family, the, the, the covenant community yet. She, she's a Gentile. She's an outsider. And I think there's here a, a glimpse of, of how the gospel is going to impact the nations. She's the first person to receive in one sense this mercy and to give God a name. And the name is so precious. You are the God who sees me. And then she, she names the well later on to commemorate the significance of this event. And, and the name that she gives the well, here's what it means. It is the well of the living one who sees me. You think this made an impression upon her heart? God's going to tell her she's going to give birth to her son and his name's going to be Ishmael. Do you know what Ishmael means? God hears. Do you get the point? 
God sees you in all of your affliction. He sees you in all of your pain. He sees you in all of your sin. And God, listen, he hears your cries. He knows your plight. And the best part of all is he can give you the mercy you desperately need. This is the God of the Bible. And she hears this, but, but this isn't just for her to hear. I think that's the other part of this that we need to see. It was actually about Abram and Sarah's running from God as much as it was about Hagar's running from God. Because listen, in their sin and in their lack of faith, they are actually running from God though they don't even see it. And now what's going to happen is here, this woman who has been treated so harshly and been oppressed and hurt and in pain, she's going to go back and guess what she's going to do? She's going to declare to Abram and Sarah, the God who hears. She's going to become a messenger to the patriarch Abram. She's going to say, listen, Abram, I know, I, I know it's been a long time. I know what God has promised you. Sarah, I know this has been painful, but guess what? I have just encountered the God who hears and the God who sees. And you need to know that he hears and he sees you too. Listen, God knows and God hears. And that's an awesome truth for us today. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the kind of pain and affliction that you're experiencing today. But listen, God knows. God sees. God hears. And you can stop running from him and you can actually start receiving from him. You can stop trying to fix things and do things your way. And you can instead start trusting his word and, and following him, obeying him. Before she returns, she's given this prophetic word in verses 11 and 12. Behold, you're pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord, listen again, has listened to your affliction. But interestingly, the, the prophecy about this child, I mean, listen to this. He shall be a wild donkey of a man. That's not a compliment. Right? When's the last time you called somebody a donkey and meant it as a good thing? His hand against every... This guy is going to be a stubborn, hostile man. He's going to be a problem child like you've never seen before. And look what it goes on. Everyone's hand is going to be against him. This guy is going to be a fighter. He's going to be in opposition to everybody. And he's especially, this is crazy, he's especially going to be in opposition to the people of God. He shall dwell over and against all his kinsmen. You know what's really interesting? It, we'll get to this eventually, but when Joseph is sold into slavery to the Egyptians, guess who he's sold by? Ishmaelites. Talk about irony. But I can't imagine. I mean, there must have been joy. I mean, there's this promise of a child, but at the same time, I mean, she's being told she's going to have like the worst child ever. Like, ah, maybe I'll take my chances out here in the wilderness, God. 
I mean, in essence, you know what God is saying? Listen, I'm going to bless you, and, and, and you know, you're going to be a matriarch of sorts, and there's a parallel going on here with, with Abram, the multitude. You know, all of this is a, is a kind of parallel, but, but instead of, of her children being the, the, the seed of the woman, her children in many ways are going to be the seed of the serpent. She goes back, verse 15 and 16. And she gives birth to this child, and Abram, notice this, Abram calls his name Ishmael. What does that mean? It means she went back and declared to him everything God had said, and guess what? God, Abram believed. He believed her. Kent Hughes says that the sense here is that she believed God and remained a child of grace, dwelling in the tents of Shem. And I just, I just want you to see that true faith in many ways is proved by submitting not when we believe it will be easy, but when we know it will be hard. And it will be hard for Hagar moving forward. And I, I, I wonder if the sense of the text here too is telling us, I think it is, that Abram not only believed, I hope it led to a renewed sense of faith in him, a turning away from his fickle faith, a kind of repenting and being refreshed in the mercy of God, I wonder if he too received the mercy of God. I think he did. It's really interesting that in, in the New Testament, in Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul, he alludes to this, this passage, this, this narrative account to describe, listen, two competing ways of trying to find salvation from our sins. And, and he says that this actually can be understood allegorically figuratively. And he, he paints these two pictures. He says it like this, I'll paraphrase. He says, you know, the son of the slave woman and the son of the free woman represent two different paths of salvation. One way produces children of slavery. I'll let you guess which way that is. It's Hagar. Because it, it represents trying to accomplish the promise of God's saving work through human effort. But the other produces children of freedom, born not of human effort, but born of the Spirit of God. In other words, Sarai represents someone who has a dead womb and is reliant solely upon the supernatural power of God to bring life from the dead. And ultimately, what he's doing is he's using these two events, these two figures to describe, listen, the only two paths of salvation offered in the world. There is the path of human achievement, which will lead you directly into the fires of hell, or there is the path of divine accomplishment, supernatural life granted by the grace and mercy of God to the supernatural provision of the Son of God coming from heaven to earth, dying, paying for our sins, suffering the wrath of God, supernaturally rising from the grave, exalted to the right hand of the Father, so that the one who is raised can now raise all who believe. It is supernatural to the core, and it happens only by faith. And the message of the gospel is this, stop trying to save yourself. Stop trying with your human effort and human power. You will never do it. And some of you, again, I need to plead with you, stop. Give up all hope in your own ability to save yourself. You can't do enough. You can't give enough. You can't come to church enough. You can't pray enough. You can't do anything. You are desperately dependent upon the mercy of God, but he offers it to you today freely. 
He says, come back to me. Submit to me. Receive life from me. And have it in abundance. And what a joy to remember that our sin and our failure to believe does not stop God from fulfilling his promises. Amen? What mercy of God to be reminded today that our sin doesn't have to define us. Our fickle faith does not change God's steadfast faithfulness. Your sins don't have to be the end of your story. Do you realize that today? Abram and Sarah, they both grow from this event. In fact, so much so that the New Testament is going to uphold them as both models of faith and godliness. Hebrews 11, Abram is this man of awesome faith. 1 Peter 3, Sarah is this woman of godliness. So listen again, even if you're in Christ today, if you're running from God, stop. Receive his mercy today. Return to him or come to him for the first time. Surrender all to him. You can be changed today by the grace and mercy of God if you trust him and receive him for everything you need for life and godliness. Through repentance and faith, he offers forgiveness and freedom. He offers fresh starts today. And the way we stop our sin and start our faith is by looking not to Abram or Sarah or Hagar, but to the one they learned to look to. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God.